Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Whole Tooth, a podcast all about sharks, brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation and me, your host, Dr. Isla Hodgson. Every episode I pitch your questions about sharks and their underwater habitat to a panel of marine experts and conservationists from all over the world. This week, we are diving back into our bumper episode on shark adaptations with phenomenal shark scientists and communicators, Armani Weber-Schultz, Jada Elcock, and Megan Hulst. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and give it a listen. We talk about the largest species of shark in the world, the smallest and the fastest, as well as learning all about Armani, Jada, and Megan's research. This episode, we carry on our conversation about sharks that glow in the dark, which takes us on a journey into the deep sea, where we meet all kinds of weird sharks with some very strange adaptations. We also spend the second half of our episode learning more about our amazing guests and their careers. They've had some really interesting and diverse journeys into marine science and have some great advice for anyone wishing to get into the field, so make sure you stay tuned for that. They also talk about science communication and the incredible work they do to improve diversity and equality in the marine sciences through their organisations Minorities in Shark Sciences and Minorities in Aquarium and Zoo Sciences. As always, I will link to everything in the show notes, so if you'd like to learn more, you can head there. With that said, let's dive back into our episode. In actual fact, we do have a question later on that asks, do any species of shark glow in the dark? Um, which actually rhymes, and I didn't realise that. Um, so maybe it makes sense then to talk about those species as we've already touched on a couple. Um, so I think we've answered the question, do any species glow in the dark? Yes, indeed, they do. Yes, they definitely do. And one of the species that is local to my, I live right next to the Pacific Ocean, and there is the swell shark. And if you look at a swell shark, they actually also can glow in the dark, which is super, super cool. I think more sharks honestly do it than you might think. Yeah, I I like that. So I guess there's kind of two different ways of glowing in the dark. So you have your bioluminescent sharks, which are like your kite fins, your pocket sharks, your uh, lantern sharks. But then the swell shark is uh, biofluorescent which is like a little bit of a different process and bioluminescent typically glows blue and fluorescent typically glows green and I'm pretty sure we actually need uh like technology to see it is that correct mm-hmm. yeah but you can just see the bioluminescence with your bare eyes so a little bit of a different type of glow in the dark but both are super cool and have like their specific purposes for each species Mm. So, so can we talk a little bit about some of those purposes? So, so why might a shark need to? Yeah. So, emit I guess I'll take the uh, lantern sharks as an example. Typically, they go like on their stomachs. They have like these photophores, um, and so it's kind of like how larger sharks that are towards the surface they do this thing called countershading. Basically, it's so that if there's um, maybe it's either to escape predators or uh, sneak up on prey. But basically, if there's an animal underneath them the small amount of light that's coming in from the surface down to these super deep depths, that's gonna, their photophores are gonna help them blend in with that light. And if you're looking at them from the top, they're like basically jet black. So you're not gonna be able to see them from the top because there's no light to then shine on them. And so it kind of just helps them blend in and is like the perfect type of camouflage for the deep ocean. Yeah, I also, so we talked about how like small 
the pocket shark is or the dwarf lantern shark. Um, but one of the species of kite fin sharks that can bioluminesce grows up to five feet. So it's not just small sharks that can bioluminesce. I think it's pretty crazy that a shark that can grow up to five feet also has the ability to do that. Um, and then the question is like, why when you're that large, would you have something that would help you with counter shading? Um, and like, why would that be advantageous to you? Because you can understand why it would be for a small shark, definitely. But when you're five feet, you're you're getting up into predator territory. I think the other interesting thing, so they're talking about um, bioluminescent sharks. And when we go back to talk about fluorescent sharks, I don't think we always know necessarily why a species might biofluoresce, but we've had a lot of recent theories that I think are really interesting because it's not just sharks that can biofluoresce. Lots of different fish species can biofluoresce. And and again, like Jada said, you can't really see that with your naked eye. However, fish can often see that with their naked eye. They can see different wavelengths of light that we cannot see with our naked eye. And so some fish species, not necessarily sharks, that they might look identical to us, but when you put a filter over it to see either UV light or fluorescent light, you actually see different markings. And one of the theories that scientists have of why a fish species or a shark species, like the swell shark I mentioned, might have that is so that the species themselves, the sharks or their predators or their prey, might be able to recognize those those uh, markings that we can't necessarily see. So if they look identical to us, the fish are like, oh, they look closely, but I can see that that's like, that's one of my, that's one of my species or that's not one of my species, which is really important if, if they want to decide whether or not they want to behaviorally engage with that other animal. I don't think I knew that. That's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So they kind of, you know, these, these, adaptation serve diff- different functions you know so you might want to a attract someone or attract a member of your own species or you might want to deter members of another species for example so yeah maybe not deter a species but like at least be able to identify oh that's not a species that like I can mate with for example mm. right like okay I don't want to go spend time with that one I'm not going to spend my energy trying to flirt with this fish because mm. it's not going to be able to mate with me anyway so they might use those markings as a way to be able to identify like species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a really, really useful skill. And we talked a little bit as well about bioluminescence being sort of a mechanism of defense. Um, so I think we talked about the pocket shark. Um, so not only do they use it to, to camouflage, but they also might use it to, to, blind, uh, to blind predators or, or so of red. So in these little kind of armpit pockets that they've got, they've got glands that emit the bioluminescent goo, uh, which they might do when they feel threatened. Um, and there are, you know, lots of other deep sea species, not just sharks that do this. So there is one, I think it's called the fire breathing shrimp. I don't know if you've heard of this. I have not. No. Yeah. So they, they like vomit up bioluminescent fluid when threatened and they, <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah pretty cool they vomit up bioluminescent fluid when faced with a predator to blind the blind the predator and confuse it and then they can run away yeah <laughs> i just looked it up oh my god these images are ridiculous <laughs> there's a really great um noah video of it with like funky little cartoon music in the background that's hilarious oh gosh i'm gonna have to look that up 
I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, we see this happen in other species and not necessarily fluorescent goo that they're spitting out at predators' faces, but like octopus species, for example, or squid species that can ink. I mean, it's a similar adaptation. It doesn't mm-hmm. biofluoresce or blind their predators, but it at least hides them so that they're like, hey, I'm going to make this cloudy ink so you can't see me for a second so I can get away, which is a really great adaptation. Yeah. I also recently read that cookie cutter sharks can bioluminesce and that they might use it um, to actually attract prey for them to then latch onto, which I think is like super weird. (laughs) Yeah, that is weird. I mean, the cookie cutter shark is probably one of the weirdest as far as the list goes. Can we just talk about the cookie cutter shark a little bit? You mentioned they might, they, they attract prey to latch onto them. Yeah. Um, so cookie cutter sharks are super weird. Um, they got the name because their mouth is round um, and their teeth go around their mouth kind of like a cookie. Um, and when you catch, uh, I, you know, I think fishers probably encounter their bites all the time. Um, they will bite into basically anything and they leave this like perfect circle bite mark out of their prey. Um, they're really gross looking. As a shark species, cool. in my opinion. They're super cool. <laughs> and I also think they're really gross looking. Um, yeah. And they just leave this like perfectly circular bite mark out of whatever prey, um, which I think a lot of people have probably seen. This happens a lot. There's like a famous um, picture of a tuna that has a perfect circle bite out of it. That's from a cookie mm-hmm. cutter shark. Um, yeah. They're just weird. <laughs> yeah. I love There's them. also a picture that was just circulating around of a thresher shark that was doing a bunch of breaching, trying yeah. to dislatch a bunch of cookie cutter. And you could see the cookie cutters, like more than one hanging off of it. And it was like breaching over and over again, just trying to dislodge them. Oh, that's yeah. so weird. So kind of like a, like a little lamprey almost. Yeah. Yeah. It was oh. super weird. And I've seen pictures as well of like people that have gotten bitten by a cookie cutter shark. And I mean, they're deep sea species, so they migrate up from the deep at night. And these people went swimming. I would just recommend not swimming in the open ocean in the middle of the night. I feel like that just seems like a bad idea. Um, but yeah, so it's like it comes up at night, and then this this guy was out swimming for like whatever, like training some distance swim, and a cookie cutter came up and it bit him. And now he has like a perfect circle scar, and. I'm I just think it's so cool I'm like that's that's just to have like this super weird scar I don't I mean I'm not trying to speak for people that have been bit by cookie cutter (laughs) sharks but like if I'm gonna get bit by one shark which is very rare to happen I would want it to be a cookie cutter because that's (laughs) they they just they're such cool sharks yeah that's a good story too Right, exactly. If anyone listening has been bitten by a cookie cutter shark, please do get in touch. We'd like to hear from you. <laughs> I would love to hear I your story. See that yeah, and see what their experience is yeah. like. I mean, that's a question for another time is actually if you could be bitten by any species of shark, what species of shark would you be bitten by? Um, but yeah, I agree. I think cookie cutter sharks are cute in their own way. They do look very weird. Um, so yeah, have a little Google at home um, if you're if you want to have a look. Um, yes. So, yeah, so the cookie cutter shark, it is actually, as you mentioned, a deep sea species of shark, which brings us on very nicely to another question, which is, do sharks live in the deep sea? Answer is 
Absolutely, yes. Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with sharks that live in shallower waters, obviously, because they're easier to film and to get footage of. But deep sea sharks are incredible. I mean, the deep sea in general just is is home to millions of weird and wonderful creatures. Um, so I thought a good place to start, actually, is to talk about the deep sea itself. So what are we talking about when we when we say the deep sea and, you know, what is it like? Like very little light, can't really see much. And because of that, and high, high pressures. So because of that, all these fish and whatever other animals down there have like the weirdest adaptations you could possibly think of. Like mm. what we talked about glowing in the dark and being shaped really weird. Um, having like less dense bones and then just kind of turning to goo when you bring them to the surface like all all these kinds of things that make them perfect for the deep sea would be not super advantageous towards the surface so um yeah sorry does anyone else want to add anything to that I think that was a great description. I immediately, for whatever reason, was just thinking of that scene from Finding Nemo when they just like go all the way down in the dark ocean. Oh my gosh, yeah, really with scared. the anglerfish and they got to find the mask. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, they just have dark. like so many weird adaptations and especially even like for sharks, um, mm. like the ability to go that deep and then come back up and experience like the crazy change in pressure because there's like atmospheres and atmospheres of pressure on you by the time you get down to the deep sea um or like jada said having like large eyes for example and being able to see the very minimal amount of light um that is down there or having a slower metabolism because there are definitely less fish than say on like a coral reef and the possibility that you might not come across your prey item for a decent amount of time um so being able to you know metabolize a lot slower and keep the prey that you caught um and get as much energy as humanly possible out mm. of that um is like also super very cool cold too very cold i was gonna you say yeah think... temperature differences yeah yeah sharks are ectotherms right so they are going to be influenced by the temperature that they're in so that also is going to influence their metabolic rate it's just so cold down there everything's just moving quite a bit slower mm. you're not going to see those fast moving like thresher sharks or something down there Everyone's moving at a slower pace of life. It's darker. It's colder. Everyone's mm -hmm. chilled out, quite literally. Yes. It's a much slower pace of life. I feel like the perfect uh, way to get a feel for what deep sea organisms are all about is to just take a look at the barrel eye fish because it has <laughs> eyes inside of its head. Like, its eyes are enclosed inside of a very clear dome of a head yeah. and they face up and they're huge and green. Like, it, why? Yeah. You know what I mean? They look looks like an alien spaceship. Yes, but it's an it's a living organism. Yeah, it looks like it's been made up. <laughs> so yeah. weird. Oh, yeah, it does. It's like a transparent dome. It always reminds me of that like yeah, like those toys you had as a kid that like had the electrical pulses and you touch it and the stream of electricity like follows your hand wherever you're touching it. That's what I think of when yeah. I think of that fish. It's just like how is this real life? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it looks fair. like a kindergartner drew it and gave it to whoever made fish. And that person was like, yes, I want <laughs> that, that one. <laughs> yeah, they were like, here, Mother Nature, I have an idea. I drew this creature that should not exist. And Mother Nature was like, you know what? I'm going to put this at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. 
Um, but like talking about deep sea sharks, um, so one example, if you want to see, I mean, to me, a lot of deep sea sharks, not only are they cool, but they absolutely, they look like something out of your nightmares. So a, a really good example is the goblin shark. I don't know if any of you have seen. Yes. Yes. Oh my <laughs> god. I'm a goblin I, shark so stan. Cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Their jaws are so weird. And like, so, okay. Their jaws are slingshots basically. And so like. Other sharks have this as well. So like the white shark, I'm sure you've seen on like Shark Week or something when they go to bite like a seal, their jaws kind of like protrude a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the goblin shark does that like times 100 and it just like doesn't move its body and its jaw just shoots out because its jaw isn't connected to the rest of its skull by anything other than like ligaments. So then it just goes and it grabs and then like snaps back into place. And, and I it's just, so fast. Yeah. Like lightning fast. Yeah. It's like the fastest bite in the shark world or something like that. If I'm remembering correctly, it's roughly, I think it's like three, three, three seconds or like three meters per second. Like something ridiculous. Oof. Yeah. Not meters, but like it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It moves so They fast. also, so that like their like nose, that part of their head that like protrudes out. So, like, when their jaw comes out, you see the jaw, and then there's, like, that thing that's sticking out as well. Apparently, that's, like, not solid. Like, I've read that it's actually relatively, like, flexible, which is kind of yeah, weird. it's really weird. So, if you, if you poked a, not that I would recommend anyone do this, but if you poked a goblin shark in the nose, it would actually sort of move a little bit. Yeah, oh. I mean, there's, like... It's it's just like an elongated like snout essentially. I think it's actually called a rostrum, even though that's what we associate mm -hmm. with a sawfish. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, no, it's super weird, and it, it's also like on normal sharks, um, not normal, but on like shallow water sharks and the ones that we see, um, and they have the ampullae Lorenzini. That's like they have that on their rostrum, and it's super weird. <laughs> Megan, I think you mentioned before that the the deep sea is a very a very slow place so everything down there it's, they've got very slow metabolisms you know that they it's very cold down there um so a lot of time you get very long-lived species and the goblin shark is often referred to as a living fossil yeah and that's that's kind of related to one my next question which is what is the longest living species of shark which is also a deep water species greenland shark yes. <laughs> <laughs> i love this shark so much I do too. It's so odd to think of a shark living in the literal Arctic, but like, they do. And it's just so, they're just little old men hanging out in the cold water. And I feel like each publication I see come out with a Greenland shark is like, oh wait, like they can live to 200 years. Wait, no, 300 years. Wait, no, like it keeps just getting more and more extreme. Like every yep. time I read about greenland sharks i think the last time i looked it up it was like they can live over 400 years yeah i think, yeah, I think was... the like con general consensus is at least 250 and then like yeah. past that is a potential but we don't have like solid evidence for it yeah. i also well, just want to like note their speed they only swim at 1.6 miles per hour yeah yeah like that is extremely you know. slow you can barely get your car to go one mile per hour <laughs> and like this humongous shark is just like swimming around the ocean moving slower than like any speed limit anywhere slower than you are in your driveway what do they eat are they filter feeders 
and they eat polar so bears and meat. They found polar How bears. How do they move that fast? They don't. They don't. They don't. Yeah, they scavenge. So like oh, they okay. sink and Anything, then they just yeah. like. Anything that sinks and like, so like polar bears, they found like reindeer antlers, um, all kinds of stuff like that. Just because they are just so slow. They're just like, I'll just find whatever's down there and dead. And it's cool because like they have to rely on like their sense of smell because most of them are completely blind. Um because they have parasitic copepods on their eyeballs that just leave them totally blind. Because it's not like they're they're not fast enough to escape these parasites or anything. Like, they can't do it. They're just like, guess I'll be blind and use my sense of smell. Like, that's fine. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love them. I love them so much. I've got, a, I've actually got a quote here from an actual scientific paper that is, can and will eat anything. Yes. <laughs> love that. Yeah. They're just living their best life. Um, but yeah, they are not only the longest living species of shark, but they are the oldest living animals on the planet. So they are pretty cool. They've been around quite a long time. And we talked about how how slowly they move. Um, so they're actually from a family of sharks called the sleeper shark family because of that reason, because of how slowly they move and, and exist, basically. Are they the oldest living animal or the oldest living vertebrate? Probably vertebrate, I imagine. The only reason I ask is because I thought that there was a clam that lived to like 600. That might not be true. But I, I always say, I wasn't sure. I was just curious if it was animal or if it was vertebrate. I think vertebrate. It, say, it says animal here, but I think vertebrate is probably, is probably the most likely because you do get some invertebrates that have been around for a long, long time. And can live really yeah, long. Probably. Like even anemones, for example, like it, they can theoretically live forever mm. if they're not disturbed yeah i don't trust invertebrates <laughs> <laughs> i respect them i just don't trust them <laughs> i've got that on record now jada i do not trust invertebrates <laughs> i don't no one should be granted immortality like that this is ridiculous <laughs> jada just offended all the invertebrate invertebrates on the planet and they're now they're like planning revolution to I said I respect them. I just don't trust them. They don't have to trust me I don't either. think we have time to break down the statement of not trusting them, but having respect. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Look, we have a this is a feeling I have specifically. Yeah, this is a feeling I have specifically towards invertebrates. It's very unique. It's fine. So one of our Final questions to answer are, are there any poisonous species of shark? And I think we can safely say that that award goes to the Greenland shark also. Yeah, their skin is extremely poisonous. People do actually eat Greenland shark, um, but you have, you to, have to let properly. it sit and prepare it for a very long time mm -hmm. before you can eat it because of how poisonous it is. Um, it has TMAO in it which is i'm gonna probably butcher this but it's trimethylene trimethylamine oxide which just sounds poisonous when you say it um <laughs> but it basically it basically acts um to help them regulate their osmotic pressure um and it also works as a natural antifreeze because if you're thinking about where they're swimming they're swimming very cold temperatures um you know in the arctic where it is freezing um and a lot of fish also like non-shark related have natural antifreeze that makes it so that their blood can keep um uh moving and flowing through their body and making it so that they don't actually freeze themselves um because you know if you like 
think of people going we will freeze in the water if we are in that cold water but these greenland sharks and fish are living there for their life um and so at some point they had to evolve to figure out how to stay alive and keep their metabolism going without freezing mm-hmm. into a popsicle so awesome it's so cool yeah yeah and apparently um so you did a much better job at saying this than i will so trimethyl trimethylamine oxide um which is t-a-t-a-t-a-m-o i did okay um that gives a feeling of drunkenness in a person or severe drunkenness in a person um but it actually features in the national dish of iceland and apparently it is described as one of the worst foods on the planet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> love that yeah yeah and um, so we've kind of come to the end of our of our kind of questions from the public if you like yeah um, can I mention something real fast yeah go for it go for it yeah yeah so there's that I mean we would consider the Greenland shark to be poisonous but there are also a couple species of venomous sharks um like the spiny dogfish um Pacific and Atlantic they have spines on both their first and second dorsal fins and they do actually inject venom and it's i'm sure it's similar to like a stingray in that like it's definitely gonna hurt and it's not good but like you're the chances of you like dying from that are so so ridiculously slim like i don't even think there's any reported deaths from uh spiny dogfish because they're also not that big so i thought that i would mention uh venomous shark as well because i think that they're really cool Yes, definitely. Definitely. And spiny dogfish as well. They also have one of the longest gestation periods, I think, of any species of shark. So kind of up up to two years, I think it is, that they carry their young I think so. Yeah, they're pretty cool. But no, I've never heard of anyone dying from dying via spiny dogfish anyway. No. Um, But yes, are there any other weird and wonderful shark species that you guys would like to give a shout out to yes um well obviously the thrasher shark because it's a shark that hunts with its butt i think that that's really <laughs> cool it, it it literally uses its tail to like whip prey and then makes it so easy to go through and collect whatever is like not moving and what's dead but i have to give a shout out to the salmon shark because it is an endothermic shark like they have a specific way that their like veins and blood vessels are laid out to where like it it's called countercurrent heat exchange to keep their muscles working at optimum levels so they can swim fast enough to catch prey in like Alaska and Canada. So I think that that's really really cool. Most people don't know about that. So yeah, salmon shark endothermy. That's really awesome. Yeah, I didn't know about that. That's really cool. Yeah. Any any other species to give a shout out to? I'm waiting for Imani to mention the bonnet head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I had two. The first one is, yeah, I'll, we'll talk about the bonnet head. Um, the bonnet head is the only omnivorous species of shark that we currently know of. Um, and there's more research about this going on right now. But basically, um, bonnet heads can eat seagrass and actually digest and get nutrients from it. Um, whereas most sharks, all they can eat is meat, and that's how they can get nutrients. Um, and for the longest time, people were finding seagrass and bonnethead stomachs and they were thinking oh like when they're eating crabs they're just scooping up the seagrass and it's just like a byproduct of what they eat um and then i believe it was actually a phd student who discovered that they actually have the enzymes and the mechanism to digest seagrass and get nutrients out of it which is really cool um and i also just want to give a shout out to nurse shark because um they're pretty underrated and i love them and their bite force 
is insane. Um, and I don't remember the exact statistics. So if either of you two remember it, that's fantastic. Um, but they're one of the, like, when you work with nurse sharks, one of the biggest things is like, obviously with any shark, don't put your hand near them, but nurse sharks can like totally suck their prey in and then just crunch the life out of them. Um, and they are full muscle, super flexible. And I love them. Little, I mean, large, but even the little ones are little rage monsters. <laughs> I love little rage monsters. Okay. I would be remiss to mon- not mention the seven gill shark because that's my study mm-hmm. species. Uh, they're incredibly cool. I will not take up the entire episode talking about them, but I could talk about them all day. They're also a deep sea shark. So when we're talking about those opportunistic, slow metabolism sharks, that's the seven gill. You can find them in lots of different places around the world, including the eastern Pacific coastline, which is where I live. And recently, like this last year, they just found multiple seven gills at like 300 meters deep outside of the Galapagos, which is really, really insane. I just have to emphasize how insane that is because we think that they live in these temperate waters, but if they can travel through tropical waters at at like deep sea where it's cold, they might actually be able to go further distances than we originally maybe thought. And another really cool part about them, well, lots of cool things, but they come into shallow bays and estuaries for important parts of their life, which I think is really interesting because you think this, you know, deep sea sharks, maybe they live there their whole life, but seven gills, they're migrating at these deep sea um, depths, but then they come into like 15 foot waters to have their pups or to breed. So I think that's also a really cool adaptation because salinity is going to be changing a lot. Temperature is going to be changing a lot. And like, humans can't really withstand big fluctuations like that. So I just think it's really incredible and we have to really appreciate how these animals have been able to adapt to those kinds of, of, uh, yeah, environmental changes. It's really incredible. I also think that they're so cute because they have these adorable little freckles all over their bodies and they're missing a first dorsal fin and it makes them look so goofy. (laughs) It does. Yeah. Yeah. Cow sharks in general, I think, are all missing their first dorsal fin. So, like, that mm-hmm. fin that you think of, like, if you think of a generic shark shape, they have this big fin that will come out of the water. Seven gills don't have that. They just have one dorsal fin at the very far back. And, yeah, it's pretty goofy looking. They're yeah. really just, like, kind of gummy grandpa-looking cool. sharks, to be <laughs> honest. But the they're so spotty. We actually use their spot pattern to re-ID them, oh, uh, cool. which you can do with lots yeah. of different species of sharks, like whale sharks and things like that. But yeah, we've we've kind of touched on it briefly, but um, my next question is more about sort of like your individual journey sort of into kind of marine sciences and, you know, where where did your passion for the marine, the marine underwater world, where did that really begin? Uh, I can go first because very odd living in the desert and now ending up on a coastline. It's super, I feel like it's common in the u.s like i've i've known so many marine scientists that are like i also grew up in arizona like it's super weird um but i i guess like when i was little i like explored a lot outside in whatever place i lived in whether that was illinois or arizona my brothers and i would just look for like spiders and uh snakes and lizards and scorpions and whatever else we could find 
and just see what was out there. And I didn't really have that opportunity to do that with the ocean. So I think that that just kind of pulled me in as I got more and more curious because I was like, I don't know what's out there because I can't just go find out. Um, so I watched a lot of like Animal Planet and Discovery Channel and Nat Geo and stuff about the ocean. Um, and I just, the more I learned, the more questions I had. And then in high school, I was like, sharks are super endangered and un- misunderstood. So I want to study them. And everyone's like, that seems like a really hard thing to do. You should pick something else. And I was like, no. So I didn't listen to anyone. And I was like, I'm going to learn how to do all the things I need to do to work with sharks. Um, and then I went to undergrad university in uh, at Northern Arizona University, which is a mountain surrounded by desert, still nowhere near a coastline or any sort of marine animal. I just majored in biology and was like, I'll specialize and figure it out later. And that's kind of what I did. Um, I ended up going to a research experience for undergrad or REU program at the University of Washington um, at Friday Harbor Labs. There is where I met Dr. Stacy Farina and she wanted me to be her lab technician at Howard University in DC on the other side of the country um, for like in like a fish biomechanics lab. Through her, I met at UW, Dr. Luke Tornabene, who knows my current advisor, Dr. Cameron Braun. And then Luke was like, he studies all the things you want to study. You should totally email him. So I emailed him out of the blue, applied to UW before I had even spoken to my advisor. And then I ended up getting accepted. And then he moved to Woods Hole. So then I moved to Woods Hole. So it's been like just this whole journey of like bouncing around the country in so many different places. And I guess like everyone's journey is a little bit different. And it's definitely odd when you start in the middle of the desert, but <laughs> what matters is you can still get there no matter where like you live. And I mean, it's been a very weird and like, like I said, bouncing around kind of journey, but it's been a lot of fun too. Yeah. I think, I think that's totally true. Like everybody, everybody's career trajectory is actually really wonky. So you, you never really kind of like in a very straight line towards something, you always kind of bounce around and do lots of different things. And it, it is those connections you make those people um, that you meet that kind of know someone else who know somebody else and then you kind of follow that follow that route so it is a little bit wonky yeah, yeah. but and and as well I think moral of the story there is just don't listen to the people in school that tell you not to do something if you really want to do it yeah just go for it yeah I tried exactly. to really say that all the time because I had multiple people in my undergrad tell me that I would never make it as a biologist and that I should change my degree So I just want to emphasize that if you're having people in your life, especially proficient people that like really good experts that are telling Mm -hmm. you to change your career, like if you know that you're meant to be there, just, you know, put your head down and find the people that believe in you because you can absolutely do it. Yeah. You know yourself better than anyone else does. So if this is something that you want to do, then you can absolutely do it. And someone out there is going to be your hype man. And if for some reason you can't find your hype man, I'll be your hype man. I got you. I'll be your oh, friend. Ditto. I yeah, absolutely. I think the three of us would be the most amazing biology hype men. So Oh my gosh, we yeah. should just make a hype man group. <laughs> we really yeah. Anytime anybody please anything. It's not even like we don't even do anything. We're just in the background like you tell them. You, you got to tag that shark. Like it's literally just us hyping people up. Oh my up. god. Oh, I would love that. Oh, can I be part of that too? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. please. Uh, we're going to make a, a hype 
hype hype man or hype woman group chat on Twitter that's just gonna be yeah type in something that you successfully did and we're just gonna be like heck yeah you do it we're so proud of you you're the best <laughs> or you tell us you have imposter syndrome and we're like let that sh go well, you don't men unite <laughs> we got this you I, you you live your life man you're the best yeah. there is like yeah absolutely oh my yes, god I love this yes I would love that to happen because I mean all of those things like imposter syndrome everything I can totally relate to that and you just you see people go through it and you just so want to just tell them not to listen to that little voice in their head or listen to like like we said listen to the people around them that are telling them not to do that so the ocean was like a decent part of my childhood but I definitely didn't know that I wanted to be like a marine biologist from when I was five mm -hmm. um I was one of those kids who like switched in between what career I wanted to do. Like I was like, at some point, every child ever says they want to be a marine biologist. It's just like one of those things. Um, but I also was like, oh, I want to be a test pilot for the military. And then I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. And then I wanted to work for the CIA. And then I wanted to work for the FBI. And then I wanted to be a vet veterinarian. Like I jumped around in like what career I wanted to do a lot. And then even when I applied to college, um, I applied under aerospace engineering to most of the colleges that I applied to. Um, so even then, like, it wasn't obvious to me that I wanted to do marine biology. Um, it was like on there, but it wasn't, it wasn't at the forefront of my mind in the school that I ended up going to in New Jersey, Rutgers. Um, I applied, they let you apply like into different majors if you're not going to come in undeclared. Um, so I applied to aerospace engineering and got rejected because like, Duh. I don't really know why I thought I would get in anywhere for aerospace engineering. Um, and then I also applied for marine, marine bio. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't have the like high school math grades that would scream that I could do aerospace engineering. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I got into Rutgers for marine biology um, and I was super excited about it, but I genuinely didn't know what part of marine science I wanted to go into. Um, and I feel confident saying that I didn't know what kind of marine science I wanted to do until like my senior year of college. Um, because I like jumped around labs. I worked in a paleoceanography lab on like fossils and forams. Um, I did something with like chlorophyll. I did like a research class. Um, I did like all these different small like research projects and none of them were things that made me think, oh yeah, that's what I want to do like as a career. Um, and the, only, the time that I realized I wanted to do sharks um was when i got a scholarship to go down to field school in miami which long story short they have a live aboard vessel um you go and you spend a week with them on the boat learning about shark research so you go out every day and you fish for sharks and you learn how to do workups on them um you learn about like physiology you get all these cool lectures about like biology and ecology of sharks and all of that stuff um and i met the amazing people over there and realized that i really liked doing field work and that I really liked sharks. Um, and so that was like, I did that the second semester of my junior year of college. And that was when I realized that like sharks was what I wanted to do. Um, but there was no shark person like at Rutgers in New Jersey. And so I had to kind of figure out how to get there without having anyone at my university who did it. Um, and that is how I ended up meeting my uh, advisor for my PhD, Dr. Brooke Flamang. Um, she had done some shark stuff in, uh, a while ago and my advisor at the time was like you should like go to her seminar and then talk to her um, and i ended up really liking her and connecting with her and so from that i've done 
um, some like fish locomotion and like walking kinematics um, and some robotics and like biomechanics and stuff. And now I'm applying all of that to do a PhD with her um, and I'm applying it all to sharks. So it was kind of like a long winded, oh, sharks are cool. It wasn't like, oh, I'm five and sharks are dope and I'm gonna work with sharks from the moment I'm five. Um, it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I like genuinely don't know what's happening. I'm just like <laughs> putting one foot in front of the other and hoping I don't walk off a cliff for like all of college, not really knowing what I was doing. And then I graduated into a pandemic and I was like, so grad school job, what do I do? So yeah, I just want people to know that like the three of us definitely like didn't know 100% of the time what we were doing. And we're probably all still kind of just like, one foot in front of the other hoping that we don't mm -hmm. like step off a cliff somewhere 100 um, so like yeah. don't feel like you have to know what you're gonna do even when you get to college because i didn't even know until basically the end of college <laughs> yeah i think i think yeah that's, that's such a good point to make because i think so many people will be comforted hearing that absolutely and and, and megan how about you yeah, I actually think my story is similar to Amani's. I think I always knew I wanted to work with animals, but like it, that context changed a thousand times. I used to like my first, the first thing I remember wanting to be when I grew up, like as a kid was a farmer. I was like, I want to be a farmer because I can like be around animals all day. And then I realized what it was actually like to be a farmer and grew away from that real quick. But I, there's a, you know, I went through all the different phases. I also wanted to be a veterinarian. And I don't remember exactly when I landed on marine biology, but it was somewhere in high school. I just don't remember exactly when that was, but I knew that like I was so interested in the ocean and how much we don't know about the ocean. And I just had a lot of questions about the ocean that no one had the answers to. And so I started to fall into that and just kind of, you know, echoing what Amani said, like I, my path was not straightforward at all. I thought when I went into undergrad, you know, I'm really passionate and I wanted to go straight from undergrad straight into a PhD program. And I wanted my PhD by the time I turned 30. Like that was my goal. And I was very set on that. But then I graduated from undergrad and I didn't actually know what I wanted to go do. And I felt really disheartened and like intimidated by even thinking about grad school. And so my path is really different. I work at public aquariums. I started working there and realizing how incredible public aquariums can be for reaching a general audience that is sitting there listening, wanting to learn about the oceans. And aquariums often are working on conservation research. So on the same day, I could go work on conservation research and then have an audience there ready to learn about what it was that we're researching. And I really fell in love with that. So I've been working at public aquariums since then. And now this year I'm turning 30 and I'm in my first year of my PhD. So it's not the path that I thought I was going to be on. I thought I was going to be done with my PhD by now and I would have my own lab and like have my life together, whatever that means. And, you know, I'm still like Amani said, I'm putting one foot in front of the other. I'm still figuring it out, but I'm also enjoying and really taking advantage of each one of those steps because each one of them is extremely valuable and I wouldn't be here researching sharks at all if I had gone straight from undergrad to my PhD program I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now and I'm incredibly grateful that I am and my even my research background like the publications that I have coming out 
aren't even in sharks. I've actually used to be a cephalopod biologist. I'm still a cephalopod biologist. I study octopuses and I have researched a lot of different things. And the reason I kind of started researching sharks was because what makes a scientist is having a question that people don't have the answer for. And seven gill sharks are in San Francisco Bay where I work. And I started asking a lot of questions about seven gill sharks that no one had the answers to. And so I just started really driving for that. I knew I wanted to do field-based research. I knew I wanted to get out on the boat. I wanted my research questions to be out in the field. And so answering those questions about sharks got me out there. And I found the right PhD program that fit and wanted to support the work and the science that I wanted to conduct. And I'm so grateful that I went the path that I did, because I think if I had just jumped into a PhD program out of undergrad, I would have been answering somebody else's question and not mm-hmm. answering my own questions that I had. And instead, I got to a point where I was posing my own questions and I found an incredible PhD advisor and my work, my work supervisors who are supporting me and facilitating me to be the scientist and answer those questions. And super exciting. But of course, you guys are not just scientists. You have many, many, many talents. I I don't have enough time to cover them all in this podcast. I wish I could. Um, But you're all very, very keen on on science communication um, and you create all kinds of different diverse content for for different platforms. I was just going to ask you about a couple of those things. Uh, So Megan and Armani, you co-host the Sharkpedia podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about the podcast and sort of and, and what it's about? Sure. Do, do this one. <laughs> sure, I will. Yeah. So Sharkpedia is a podcast all about sharks and their relatives, but we just couldn't think of a name that included all the Lasmabranks in a way that was easy to remember. So Sharkpedia, Sharkpedia is yeah, Sharkpedia is a mix of, you know, and sharks and encyclopedia. So we are early career science shark scientists. And so we're reading a lot of literature and we're actually interviewing the primary authors of that literature and interpreting that literature to the general public through our podcast. So we'll have the author on our podcast and ask them lots of questions about how they came across this question, how they answered the question and digest the the literature in a way that is understandable because science literature is really difficult to understand. Even if you're a scientist, it can be really difficult to always read the literature and understand what they mean by that. And so we're trying to make it one more accessible to people and two more understandable for people and three exciting and like trying to break down some of these misconceptions about sharks and studying sharks and shark fisheries and all these issues around sharks. We're trying to make that a lot more digestible. And it came about because I love listening to podcasts a lot, but I was literally going to every podcast that I could find about nature and just looking and scrolling through trying to find the shark scientists because that's what I wanted to listen to. I was like, man, and I literally was like, I I was messaging Amani and I was like, Amani, I have this crazy idea. I'm like constantly (laughs) trying to find podcasts that have shark scientists. What if we just made a podcast and had like did it ourselves? (laughs) Yep. And here we are. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. And it's been really fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I guess this is kind of like a weird kind of crossover episode then <laughs> in a way. But yeah, it's a it's a super fun podcast and it it breaks down science in a way that's really easy and accessible to listen to. So, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll have links in the show notes to people that, you know, want to want to go listen to the podcast. Uh, definitely. And then and, and then Jada as well. You 
I found you through your TikToks. Now, I'm, I'm such a granny in that I don't actually have TikTok, um, but I found them on Twitter. <laughs> but um, can you explain a little bit about how did you start creating your kind of animal facts videos? Yeah, so I, <laughs> I was one of those people that was like, I'm not going to download TikTok. I refuse to cave in, like I'm not doing it. <laughs> And then in December of like 2019, I was like, oh, fine, I'll do it. Everyone seems to be having a blast on TikTok. So fine, I'll download it. And I saw a bunch of people like had their thing. Like I saw artists that were drawing like companies as people or like social media apps as princesses or something crazy like that. And it was just so much fun. Um, People had like their dances. People had their like debunking conspiracy theories and like they had like their thing that they did on their page and I was like I want a thing I I want to have a thing and I was like I know a lot about animals and I like to talk a lot so I'm just gonna do that so I just started making these videos um looking back on them the old ones are not good but they're not (laughs) Like, they're so painful to watch now because they're so slow. And I'm just like, why do I look so bored? I don't understand. Like, it took me a while to kind of, like, find my voice and, like, mm-hmm. like really put myself into it. Because I was like, I'm putting this on the internet for everyone to see. But then I was like, who cares? People seem to be having fun with it. Just be yourself. And then it started to become a lot more, like, organic and natural and authentic and more fun, in my opinion. Um, and they're so, I started- so funny. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My friend encouraged me to put them on Twitter as well. I was like, I don't know if people on Twitter really like them, but like, okay, I'll put them on Twitter. And like, I, it like exploded. I I went from like a hundred followers to like 400 followers in like a couple weeks. And I was like, that's crazy. And then I kept posting them. And then like two months later, I had 10,000 followers and I was like, what is going on? And then in a weekend, I gained another 5,000 followers. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? So now I'm at almost 24,000 followers on Twitter. And I'm at 15,000 on TikTok because I just post random nonsense about animals. And I'm like, hey, people get a kick out of it, I guess. Um, And it's really funny because people think that I speed up my videos and I put them on like double speed. I don't. (laughs) I just She talks like that. Yeah. She and like in person, she talks like that. I do. That's very true. If I start talking about my animal facts videos for too long, I'll start to just like speed up. And I'm like actively yeah. trying not to do that right now. And it's really hard. But I just and it like, sounds really weird because I know what you normally sound like. <laughs> so do you yeah. feel weird now? Because she sounds she's she's slower than she usually is. <laughs> yeah, normally she's like it's funny because Amani is like one of the few people that can like keep up with the speed at which I talk and she's just like yeah I got it this makes sense all of it and then like Carly and Jasmine are like I have no idea what you just said please re-explain slow it down give me a second but I just like typically that's just how I speak and it's so funny because everyone thinks that I put it on double speed yeah. and my mom's friends on Facebook are always like how does she talk so fast I'm like <laughs> I don't know I just do um but yeah so I just kind of have fun uh making these animal fact TikToks and you know just finding credible sources and it's great because I learn about uh, these animals too Mm because half the time people suggest animals to me that I take and like I make sure that I tag them in the video afterwards so it's kind Mm -hmm. of like engaging with the audience too but like yeah half the time I'm like 
I don't know anything about this animal. Like I've seen it before or I've heard about it, but I don't know anything about it. And so then I'll do research about it and I'm learning all this stuff. And then I get to share that excitement with other people. And I think that that's just really fun. So I'm glad that people enjoy it because I have a lot of fun with it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super fun. They're like some of my favorite things to watch. And I, I like, I appreciate that you can talk that fast and still like communicate everything that you have to. It's a very impressive skill, but you, you, you mentioned uh, Carly and Jasmine there, and that's like a really nice, segue into minorities and shark sciences of which you guys are co-founders um so I just wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about MISS and kind of what your what your mission is yeah so I, I'll take a little bit of it is that okay Moni is that good yeah go for it okay um yeah so minorities and shark sciences aka MISS um is an organization dedicated to uh providing resources and a community for women of color in the field of shark science Um, because it is typically a very white male dominated field Um, and the co-founders are me, Amani, Carly Jackson and Jasmine Graham and this all started during the pandemic we launched in June of 2020 um, and we all found each other on Twitter and just kind of got talking and we were like haha how funny would it be if we started a a club for black women in shark science and then jasmine was like yeah it's not a joke anymore we're making it happen let's do this and so we did it um it has been a whirlwind of a year it's been amazing we now have over 300 members in 21 different countries and so many friends of miss as well which are people who don't identify as women of color but still want to be you know like part of the mission um Yeah, I mean, we provide uh, workshops, um, like field workshops uh, with field school to help get people out on the boat and get some experience with long lining and drum lining and doing workups on sharks. Um, So we had our first round of those this year and it was so much fun. And that was also the first time that all four of us had met in person after like 10 months or something. (laughs) Yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> um, which was crazy. We've discovered that Amani and I are the same person. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that's really fun. Um, we do webinars every month for mm-hmm. uh, our members to kind of, you know, like, how do you write a resume? Or like, how do you apply for grad school? We have like networking events. So people are like, oh, I need samples from this shark. And then someone on the other side of the country is like, I have them that you can totally use. And so it's a really nice community Um, not only for like research purposes, but also for people who have, you know, some shared experiences and just Mm want to like hang out with like-minded people. And it's, it's been so wonderful because, I mean, you don't see a ton of representation um, of, you know, people that look like us in the media, especially in marine science. And people are like, well, it's just because people of color aren't interested in marine science and I'm like our over 300 members would disagree with you so (laughs) yeah um but it's been so much fun and I love it so much and I feel like I'm rambling now uh Amani what else do you have to add (laughs) um okay so I'll add I'll add a couple of things um we like in our first year partnered with a whole bunch of different organizations we partnered with the Bimini Shark Lab um we partnered with Oceans Research and we also now have a partnership with National Geographic to help um diversify their shark fest shows um which is really big because in the media you don't see all of the women of color and just people of color and women in general in the shark science field um and so we were all super excited that they reached out to us and like we're interested in improving 
um, representation in their shows. Mm -hmm. um, and in the future, like, I think that the possibilities of what we want to do with Mist are basically endless. Um, we already have some K through 12 content called Guild Guardians that's online. Um, you can find it through our website and it's free. So you just make an account um, and there's lesson plans. You can learn all about sharks. You can do the K through two lesson plans. You can do the adult lesson plans, whatever you want. Um, and all of that is free. So basically on top of making shark science more accessible for women of color, we're also just trying to make it more accessible mm -hmm. um, because marine science and shark science is very much so a pay to play field. Um, and while statistically people of color are more likely to come from a financially disadvantaged background, that doesn't mean that there are plenty of other people who also experience that. And so um, we're really trying to hopefully like change the tides of the whole pay to play culture that we currently have mm -hmm. um, in marine science and shark science so that it can just be more accessible to a wider range of people in general. Amani, I will say that Amani and Jada and Carly and Jasmine truly inspired me uh, so they created Miss, and I have been seeing very similar problems of lack of representation of diverse mindsets and people in aquarium and zoo science. It is an incredibly whitewashed world, and it's also pay to play, but it is almost aggressively so. Mm -hmm. You have to work for free for a very long time in this in aquarium and zoo science before you can get even uh, internship or entry level job, and those entry level jobs are very underpaid. So they really inspired me that it doesn't matter how old you are or senior in, in your field, you can make a difference. And so we've actually been trying to model the MIS model for aquarium and zoo science. So we've created minorities in aquarium and zoo science, which you can find at miaz.org. We call ourselves Mayas. And we're a brand new organization, so we don't have quite as many opportunities yet that Miss has made, but that's certainly our goal. So our mission is to remove a lot of the social and financial barriers preventing minorities from getting into this field and creating opportunities through scholarship opportunities and mentorship opportunities to get people to conferences and the educational programs that are required to get into this field. And we also hope to develop workshops and things like that similar to Miss, so that people can get hands-on experience and understand what it means to get in this field. And aquarium and zoo science is very diverse. It's not just working with animals. You can be a scientific diver. You can be a life support operator, like a mechanic. You can be working with those animals. You can be a researcher where you're out in the field doing conservation research. So it's a very diverse field, mm -hmm. but our professionals are not diverse. And that is something that we're very passionate about ch changing. I say we, my, my co-founder is Jenny Jansen. And so her and I are currently working on uh, doing something very similar and we're brand new uh, but we hope to start making some similar opportunities i'm so awesome. excited for you guys for this whole for all of this this is so this is so cool i honestly was like kind of emotional listening to you guys because i'm just it's so inspiring and i just i i think it's already making such a big difference for some yeah. people so it's really great watching you guys you truly have inspired me to do better and do more Thank you. Absolutely. I'm going to cry. <laughs> yeah, I can only I can only agree with that. Like it's just it's so incredible to see you guys grow as well over the last year um, and sort of have a, a much, much bigger outreach and inspire people. You know, even if people don't identify as minorities, that's highlighting ways that they can actually get involved and they can support you as well and, you know, support these kinds of initiatives. So yeah, it's so, it's so exciting. Thank you 
you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing some of your wisdom with all of us. It's been so, so fun. Um, and I just want to say thank you as well, A, for the amazing work that you do to communicate science in such like a fun and accessible and joyful way. And also B, for all the work that you do to make science and academia a sort of more inclusive and representative space as well I think it's such important work that you do um, and I just wanted to ask as well if anyone at home would like to get involved with MIS or would like to get involved with minorities in aquarium and zoo science you know how how might they do that uh, well for MIS you can check out our website missylasmo.org um, and you can also find us on socials we're on Instagram and Twitter at miss underscore elasmo um, you can also find us on Facebook and YouTube and I think LinkedIn by just kind of searching our name. Yeah, and for minorities in aquarium and zoo science, we're myaz.org. That's M-I-A-Z-S dot org. So you can definitely follow us there. We're hoping to continue to build our resources and pathways for if you're interested in a career in aquarium and zoo science, we have really cool resources so you can figure out where you might fit into that and where to start your career and hopefully some opportunities soon to help you get there. And um, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're probably most active on Instagram. And at both Twitter and Instagram, we're at mayas underscore now. So you can definitely follow us there. And I hope we continue to provide opportunities for people in the future. Awesome. Yeah. And I will put links to everything in the show notes. So how to find those organizations as well as how to find Jada, Megan and Amani individually too. Um, and um, before I lose you guys, um, I just have one final question. And that question is, if you could be any species of shark or ray in the whole world, what species would you be and why? Um, I feel like that's an easy one for me. Uh, thresher shark. They're awesome. They have really cool tails. They just get to swim around the open ocean all day. Also, they look terrified all the time. And I think it's hilarious. So if I could be anything, it would be a thresher. If I had to pick a ray, it would be the cow nose ray, just because they are just so goofy and fun and cute, and I love them. Uh, I would be a seven-gill shark, which is no surprise probably to anybody, uh, because, you know, I'm going to say the why is just because they're, like, underrated and so chill, and I thrive to be as chill as a seven-gill. Um, I'm going to go... With a ray, I'm going to go with the yellow stingray um, because I think they're super cute and they're incredibly understudied. There's only like 22 papers on them total wow. in comparison to other rays and sharks. Um, and I would really like to be as lazy as they are. They kind of just sit on seagrass, camouflaging all day and then eating when they get hungry. And I could really use like a rest break right now. There we go. Thank you all so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really fantastic to talk to you all and nerd out about sharks. Yeah, thank you yeah, for thank having you us. Thank you for having us. And that is a wrap on episode three. I really hoped you enjoyed our chat with Armani, Megan and Jada. They really do have a serious passion for Elasma Franks and it's been so fun and so interesting to have them on the podcast. So a massive thank you to Armani, Megan and Jada for all of your time and wisdom. 
If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss the next one and leave us a nice little review on iTunes. This just helps more people to find us. And if you'd like a question answered on the podcast or you just want to say hi, please feel free to get in touch by emailing isla at savercs.com. All right. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.